Welcome to Tesseract. I'm Bob Stevenson. And I'm Steve Cartwright. And we are so glad that you're joining us today as we attempt to explore the integrated Christian walk in light of the ways that it's been dismantled. Last week, we started a conversation. We started a conversation on the church's response to racism. Uh, to recap, we talked just a bit about the legacy of the black church, how, while it is not a monolith, um, was sort of tasked with living out a true Christian faith in the U.S. It's true in the sense that it's theology, which did not largely differ from much of the white church in general, uh, but whose body was marred by, but not complicit in the sin of slavery and racial superiority. Now, this doesn't make the black church all right, the white church all wrong, um, but does inform us just a bit about the long-lasting, devastating effects of racism in our country, um, and even in many ways in how the church has been along for the ride. So today, we're going to change it up just a little bit and tell you a little bit more about where here is, since we've already tried to tackle how we got here. Now, this month, uh, some interesting stuff went down in uh, American evangelicalism. Uh, the SBC had a meeting of the minds and some key leadership, and they, uh, in reaffirming their doctrine, ended up uh, devising a statement uh, to, well, basically say that critical race theory was uh, something to be avoided. Now, without getting into the weeds too much, it, it certainly caused a firestorm. Um, one of the, the big items of note, or the big responses, is that uh, Progressive Baptist Church, pastored by Charlie Dates, who we've referenced on this podcast, um, decided to leave the SBC, which I didn't actually know that they were part of the SBC until kind of recently. Um, uh, but I, I think that really stood out. There was a very public, very clear uh, statement, uh, repudiation of a denomination that has consistently uh, really limped along in their dealing with issues of racism. Uh, also interesting, this month um, I had a few or a, a member uh, leave our church because we we're talking about social justice too much. This is not the first time this has happened, of course, but it, it does happen. So he here we are uh, in this still very tumultuous world where talking about dealing with issues of racism and 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 thinking about the tools that we use to talk about racism are really hotly contested, which leads to an interesting question. Uh, you know, is there actually really a problem still? I mean, is this all simply a play for power? Um, you know, progressives obsessed with uh, issues of social justice, et cetera. Uh, or is there really an issue here? Um I mean, I, I, as I mentioned in the opening episode, I didn't really think there was that much of a problem still. And plenty of folks over over the years have continued to think that. But it's not really the case. So let's talk a little bit about this question. Um, is, there, is there really a race problem in the United States still? Or is it a thing of the past? Just to make this a little more interesting, instead of answering that with a resounding yes, I think... Uh, I think I would maybe start a little softer and say that um, I think we've earned skepticism in answer in ask in answering that question. Um, I think we've earned skepticism when it comes to uh, when it comes to racial realities in the U.S. Um, now, the the situation, the murder of George Floyd that happened earlier this year, 
um, that got so much notoriety uh, and has really started a firestorm or started back up a firestorm in the U.S. Um, it's not it's not a new story. It's not a new scenario, um, but it conjured up images of the past. Uh, it conjured up images of a white man uh, in power, um, whether physically, uh, in this case, very much physically so, over that of a black man and using that power um, to not only subdue, but kill a black man. So having law enforcement versus uh, the black male specifically is not a new scenario. And so every time that we see that, uh, it's cringeworthy, all eight plus minutes of um, of uh, the officer on George Floyd's neck is excruciating to watch. Um, and there are those who will say, yeah, but you can't prove that it was racist. Ergo, are we really still having a problem with this? And there are others who say this is obviously race related. And I think that with the amount of history that we have, we've earned skepticism. Um, and that that happens very naturally when you don't have trust. I didn't always have trust that when I get pulled over, I haven't always had trust that when I get pulled over, it is because uh, it doesn't have anything to do with my skin color. Now I've been pulled over um, because my tail light was out um, and or my sticker was expired. Uh, and so found out that I was not being profiled. In this case, there was a perfectly uh, kind officer who was perfectly um, within his rights to pull me over. And then there was uh, one or two other incidents where, in my opinion, they were quite racially motivated. So when I think about that, I'm like, I think we've earned the right to be skeptical, you know? I, I And I think that's a helpful frame because when you know, we were talking a few minutes ago about this, um, that when talking about race anymore, um, some folks want you to point to some concrete evidence. They, they, they want to see a KKK, you know, hood or a bull Connor or something like that. Um, kind of your classic racist. And they'd be like, well, where, where are the racists anymore? You know, we don't see that. Um, we don't, we don't have, um, uh, Jim Crow laws in the books, et cetera. And so, I think framing it in terms of earning skepticism is is helpful um, because if we're being honest, <laughs> racism didn't just like go away with civil rights legislation. I mean, it's not like all of a sudden the soul of the nation was just purged of all of its uh, um, uh, bias and all of its um, fear of the other. Uh, in fact, I think it's Michelle Alexander who makes this point in her book, uh, the new Jim Crow talks about just how like racism reinvents itself. It's creative. It, it continues to work, um, uh, in, in ways within the bounds of the law. In fact, if you watch how racism morphs, um, uh, throughout American history, you'll see it adapting to the legal context in which it lives. Um, so that the, uh, the white dominant uh, class can stay in power. So, and and frankly, as Christians too, um, it's it's pretty naive to say that like evil is eradicated just because you know we're forty years past, fifty years, sixty years past um, uh, civil rights legislation. I mean, uh, of all people, Christians should have the most sympathy for. Um, the creativity of uh, mm -hmm. 
the vileness of the human heart, right? Um, and how the uh, the ways the darkness can uh, manifest itself. But even beyond the skepticism, uh, there is evidence, right? I mean, we, we think about um, uh, you. You brought up getting pulled over. I mean, there's. I think mountains of evidence in terms of police misconduct. Um, it, not every instance of uh, police contact with a civilian, but um, you 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 do see some really concerning disparities. Yeah, absolutely. I think another one that comes to mind is uh, uh, sentences for nonviolent offenses. You know, I think that we can track this back legally to at least the war on drugs in the U.S. Um, but being able to uh, examine someone's crime that they committed um, and then look at the sentence that they uh, that they've earned, if you will, uh, in the justice system um, has disproportionately um, been against African-Americans and African-American males more specifically um, than any other group. And uh, some would call that just this is that's an economic problem. You have more black people per capita. Uh, that are in poverty. And so crime uh, kind of comes up from there. Uh, but I think it's more, it's more complicated than that. Um, you know, when did kind of to your point about the reinventing of any kind of sin, but racism in this case, when did housing discrimination sort of start stop um, when someone gets out of prison uh, and then being branded as a criminal, this affects voting, this is affects where they get to live. This affects, um, potential jobs and earnings that they'll be able to have. Uh, and so um, if you're looking for a specific piece of legislation like the or something like called the Black Codes hidden, you know, um, at your local courthouse, uh, that's probably not what you're going to find. Um, and so being able to, I, I guess, maybe read in between the lines a little bit there is important. Uh, and or maybe as I would put it, as I put it in the past, to consider, to consider this, uh, this systemic reality that um, that many people are trying to bring to light, maybe it's not quite as far-fetched as, as, as some might think. Um, and again, trying to understand that this is not a new, a new conversation. It's been going on for some time and there's been pushback about as to whether this was racist or not for a very, very long time. Um, I also just want to mention that there were sort of those three murders, uh, starting with Ahmaud Arbery earlier this year, and then Breonna Taylor, and then George Floyd. And those brought up a lot of conversations and it was like, now we need to have a discussion. Um, this is a, an ongoing discussion, you know, and so I'm really happy that anyone is listening to this or is, is pursuing education on the on the topic, on the reality, or they are considering uh, the perspective that some might have when they are trying to bring light to the sin of racism. I think it's important to remember that when you're when we're doing that, it's not a new garment. If you're trying on a garment of understanding racism, just to understand that it's probably from goodwill. It's been worn many times um, and it's been going on at least since uh, we've been taping it. We've been recording it since at least the beating of Rodney King and then the ra L.A. race riots that kind of came after. But uh, this is ongoing. So we're not doing something new by talking about it now. Uh, and and you're right. It's been reinvented. <laughs> it's a it's an old garment from Goodwill. That's yeah. nice. Nice image there. <laughs> um, so, I mean, if this is so pervasive and it's been around for so long, we're talking about it, we've been talking about it, nothing's being changed. 
um, and it's still such a problem, then why is it that, you know, white folks can't see it? And, and I, I frame it that way because um, proportionately it's white people who tend to deny there's an issue. There's some interesting research that came out, um, I believe it was this month, by the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture at the University of Virginia, and uh, their report is called uh, Democracy in Dark Times. And uh, they um, did some really interesting analysis uh, on, on a whole bunch of different fronts, to, uh, politically um, and, and helping to think about cultural groups, um, the way they think about the other and all that. But um, there was one question uh, about racism, seeing whether racism was viewed um, as a significant threat um, or very serious threat. And 86% of African-Americans said yes. Um, 70% of Hispanics said yes. White even white non-evangelicals, sixty-eight percent of them said yes. Only thirty-six percent of white evangelical Protestants said yes. That's a huge disparity, right? You get a hundred people in a room, and uh, um, you know, hundred African Americans in a room, and eighty-six of them say, "Yeah, this is a huge problem." You get a hundred white Protestants in a room, and only thirty-six of them say, "Yeah, this is a problem." You're dealing with some significant numbers, and we see this borne out constantly, right? Um, so why in the world do we see that disparity in our conversations, in society, in surveys like this? What is keeping uh, white folks from seeing what we're saying is a, a live, pervasive problem? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I would point to would be what what's what role in the story are you playing? You know, uh, and let's be honest, if we're talking about racism in the U.S., the villain is going to be played um, by white people. And we could just keep it as broad as white people, you know. Uh, and if we get more specific for a time period, we'll go, well, I mean, people who were slaveholders. I mean, people who, uh, you know, or I would think the South versus the North. You know, we have all these ways that we would conveniently like to play it, um, which isn't true, by the way. But uh, I think that that's a harder pill to swallow. And so that's a harder role to cast, if you will. Um, and so uh, that's one reason why we don't want to see it is just we're conditioned not to because we don't really want to talk about it. We don't want to engage with it. Uh, we talked a little bit about uh, South Africa um, last week and, and uh, how apartheid was handled um, internally and externally of South Africa. And you can also take a cue. I think we could learn a lot from Germany's response to World War II after being sort of the world's villain and how they responded. Um, those are you have to be able to accept a, a role, if you will, and doesn't mean that it's complete, um, doesn't mean that it's irredeemable, uh, but to be able to consider it. And that's I think that's a hard thing. I would think um, the hardest thing for, for white people to do. I could say something very very casual about race in general. I can make a joke that has to do with skin color and I can do it way easier um, than than most of my, than probably any of my white friends, you included, Bob. Um, so I think that's, that's a real, that's a real limit is just the role that you would historically be playing in it, you know? So what you're kind of suggesting is that there's almost a fence mechanism in terms of uh, owning 
um, like my historical role as a member of the the white race and uh, being the villain. Is that kind of what you mean by yeah. its role and making it difficult to talk about? Yeah, I think so. Uh, in fact, to take it a step further, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, talking about language and even how that makes people more or less willing to talk about it. We're talking about race and racism, hard topics to kind of talk through. Um, and uh, that's the way we've understood in talking through discrimination in the U.S. and, you know, racial tension going back and forth between all types of different groups, but particularly um, between black people and white people. Uh, but in her book, Cast, um, Isabel Wilkerson talks about uh sort of reframing the conversation and and calling a lot of what we identify as modern racism, really calling it more of a caste system in the U.S. that has been allowed to exist for a really long time. Now, we're pretty familiar with a caste system being in India, um, but she makes the case, a very interesting one, a very compelling one, in my opinion, um, for why it might be more accurate or at least, I think, more helpful uh, to use different language. Because when we hear the word race or racism, that tends to like send, send us running, especially if we think that we might be implicated in it. It's so it's so uh, it's such a hard topic. Um, it brings about such tension and such ugliness that we really don't want to engage with it. So language is is one thing what you're going to call it, um, you know, and so that kind of comes to mind is maybe a limit as well. But I don't know if you have if you have thoughts on that. Well, having not read the book yet, um, I don't know that I can comment directly on the thesis, but I, I do like the idea of almost reframing. Um, it's interesting because a, a lot of, uh, white folks, when they talk about disparities, they'll immediately deflect to it's, it's a class problem. It, it's a class issue. It's not a, a race issue. Um, and you know, to a degree that's true. Um, when we look at, uh, racial disparity in the United States, it's bound up with socioeconomic, uh, realities, right? Like you, you can look at all kinds of inequalities and see and, and tie them um, uh, to, uh, metrics related to race. So I think the concept of caste can be useful insofar as it, it may give a more expanded set for, for thinking about, um, uh, the way that our, our country has treated other, um, otherness and other people, um, uh, the way that it's kind of, sought to elevate one group over another um because because you know the the limitations of racism using racist as a uh, descriptor and talking about race is we tend to think again of kind of your white hood wearing uh kkk members or you know people who say something or or show preference or reveal clear prejudice you know that's that's racist. Um, the thing is, is like we, those, those explicit and open structures that facilitate racist behaviors, the kind of out and open stuff. Um, they're just not, it's not popular anymore to do that. Like you look like a moron if, if you're, um, and kind of an out and proud racist. Um, and, and yet there's so much at play that seems to enforce this so-called caste system. So I don't, I don't know, it, it may be useful, um, 
to, to kind of develop new language that allows us to capture the reality more concretely. But I also, I do think um, that the, the idea of racism is an important one that we don't want to lose. It was a social construct that was developed um, and we're still wrestling with the consequences of it. And so we, you know, we can't sort of just walk past it either. Man, here's a bit of a rhetorical question, but what happened to all of the racists? <laughs> um, they went away, man. They're extinct. They went away. <laughs> I, I, I find that almost comical if it wasn't as infuriating. But uh, if you if you watch the news and not just like the, you know, your your own favorite media, but even like the local news uh, and you follow, um, you'll see that, well, someone just got mad in a Starbucks and uh, and racially profiled someone or uh, or someone just yelled at someone speaking Spanish and said, this is America, speak English or get out or something or, or speak American. <laughs> um, and you see this like overt overt prejudice and overt like vitriol uh or you see maybe a kid at a at a school like now they're being defended by their parents because they they did blackface on tiktok uh any of these situations that you want to kind of look at or examine a little bit deeper they're almost always followed up by i apologize for my actions that wasn't me i am not racist i assure you that i am not racist that is the most important thing to do. So it ends up begging the question um, sort of facetiously. So what happened to all the racists or what does a racist look like anymore if that's not racist? And why are we more afraid of the the label of racist than we are of racism? You know, um, and that, so that bothers me a lot. But I find that really interesting that whenever we're in really deep water for something that's pretty clearly racist, uh, the sort of followed up very quickly about, I need to do some soul searching. I need to learn from my mistakes or, um, you know, I, I was in, I was at a weak point. This is not reflect who I am. I'm not a racist. Um, and maybe it would be helpful for us just to be able to admit that sometimes that individually and collectively, this was racist, that we, something that we did or said, you know, it's interesting though. And I, so there, there, there is not only a legal um, movement to eradicate uh, oppressive behaviors and and laws and all of that, uh, but um, you know, not only is it, is it illegal to own other people or to discriminate based on skin color, et cetera, um, but like culturally, it's just again, it's not cool to be an out and loud bigot, right? Like. There, are, I, I realize that sort of changed over the past four years, perhaps. Um, but uh, generally speaking, uh, it's it's not. So I think when people do exhibit racist behaviors, when they say things that are just disgusting, or whatever, it's possible for them to say, "Oops, I slipped up," or "That was, you know, I wasn't thinking." Because there's so much social pressure um, associated with being a racist, like it's kind of one of the worst things that you can be. So what we, I think what we've seen is a reduction in public racism. Um, but it, 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 to building on your question, where did all the racists go? Well, they went underground. I mean, racism went underground. It became subterranean, which is why in order for us to talk about it, we have to be able to examine um, and question uh, existing 
modes of operation, structures, uh, cultural assumptions, um, a bit more critically to say, do we, this is where that idea of skepticism that you brought up, um, comes back into play. Like, do we really believe that these were just isolated incidents or that they were innocent or that they were free of racial bias, um, in light of our history? I think, I think that the social pressure piece is a really compelling element that doesn't get talked about enough. One of the things I'd like to also talk about is being colorblind. Um, so I'd love your, I'd love your opinion on this because, uh, I've seen this for a little while, but there's still some, some pushback, uh, that I've had either directly around like why we should be colorblind, or even if someone isn't articulating to me why I, sh- why, so why we should be as a society, basically their how they view racism in the U S or how they talk about it is through a colorblind lens in their opinion, you know? Um, I consider it to be a pretty idealistic falsehood. I mean, racism in the U.S. has occurred in various different ways, uh, and definitely white and black is what we've been tackling. But whether through Native American genocide, the transatlantic slave trade, the Jim Crow era, the, the Chinese Exclusion Act, the Japanese internment camps, uh, I could go on and on. These waves have um, allowed us to maybe more easily identify racist and racism or maybe qualify it with that's overt racism. So that's the, the dangerous one. Um, but it's no longer, as you're kind of saying, it's no longer acceptable to be an overt bigot. Um, so I think that's where sort of this idea of like, I just love people. Um, I just, uh, uh, I, I don't see color. I choose to define people not by the color of their skin, but as Dr. King so elegantly said, by the content of their character. Um, so I'd like to get into why I think that falls flat, but I love your perspective on it first. That's a great question. Because it's bad. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it is a noble sort of idealistic um, concept. I mean, it sounds great, you know, this idea that I don't see color. I think what people are um, in the best of worlds trying to say is I don't see black as bad, or I don't see Asian as foreign, um, if, and go on and on and on, right? Uh, it's an attempt at saying um, that difference doesn't make you less human. Uh, we're all in this together, like one big Coca-Cola commercial. But what it often masks is a um, an atemporalizing of and a dehistoricizing of um, of racial difference that does exist. So oh, yeah, it's a, I definitely it, know what you mean by that. But why don't you go ahead and explain it for me anyway? <laughs> <laughs> it's this idea of jumping right into the middle of the conversation and saying all everything that came before us doesn't matter that I can choose not to see color and I'm going to ignore the socializing effects of my world on me. I'm going to ignore the, uh, the way that um, I've been trained to see black people um, and to see uh, uh, Latino people. And I'm just going to say, yeah, but we're all the same without ever critically assessing my own biases, 
critically mm-hmm. assessing my own um, uh, instincts when, um, you, you know, so, so I think what it ends up being is it's a cop out because people who claim to be colorblind um, are still going to be tempted to move out when that certain threshold um, of, of African-Americans move into their neighborhood. Um, they're still going to be less likely to actually attend a multi-ethnic church, a uh, truly multi-ethnic church, or uh, go join uh, a black church. Or, you know what I'm saying? Like I said, I, I don't think you're going to see folks who uh, trumpet colorblindness actually living as though um, they were truly colorblind. Yeah. I think, I think uh, another thing that bothers me is that the, this colorblind argument for all of us being the same is not even sufficient for the Christian because uh, our Imago Day status is not maintained because I look like you or because you look like me. We don't need to be the same color, be the same height or have the same gender as one another in order to be valued, in order to be made according mm-hmm. to the image and likeness of God. Uh, so talking about diversity, recognizing distinction between us is not glorifying it, as I think the fear for some uh, in talks of diversity uh, is. Um, I liken it to kind of like the flagship passage, the flagship diversity passage in Scripture, uh, Revelation 7. Um, <laughs> in that part of John's vision, uh, he sees a multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They're all recognizing and worshiping the Lamb. Um, this speaks to the power of the gospel. It speaks to the power of the lamb, not to um, how I'm better than you because I have uh, more melanin or less melanin. Um, but it also doesn't hide the fact that there are distinctions between people and language and tribe. Um, so I, I think it, it's just wholly um, insufficient for Christians as well. Um, and then lastly, at least for me, is... Is societal tap out, as you called it, it begs a big question of community responsibility for whoever is claiming it. Like, let's assume for a moment that you're telling us the truth, that you are, in fact, colorblind. Do you think everybody is? Uh, if you're if you can't be racist because you can't see the difference in people, uh, the color of people's skin, you only see the content of their character. What about the overt racist that you're so much against? Um, are what are you doing to help combat that reality? Um if not, how does how does your color perception or lack of color perception, how does it actually help um, the body of Christ or does it help socially? Um, because even if you're claiming to be colorblind, you're not saying the world is, you know? Well, and then on, oh man, and then on top of that, um, what do you do if you say, I don't see color and therefore nobody sees color when somebody... <laughs> when a person of color says, hey, I was just treated in a racist way, what are you going to respond? How are you going to respond? You're going to say, racism doesn't exist. You're lying. <laughs> I mean, and so <laughs> you you actually discredit the experience of those who suffer injustices. So that that's where it ends up being really, I mean, fairly naive um, and, and unrealistic. And I love to, I just want to go back to your point on, on the flagship passage, um, that this idea of the Imago Dei, being a um, glorious, diverse reality and to take what God has painted as a beautiful mosaic um, of color and try to grayscale it 
Um, that's lame. <laughs> it's it's taking something that God has made beautifully different and and trying to make it all look the same. That that misses the point. So that that's a that's an important theological reality too. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, as we've been talking about racism, we've been zooming in on relations between black and white people. That is the most obvious in the U.S. is uh, going so far back and is so complex uh, and is so easily recognizable. But there's so much more as a part of that conversation. And because we're trying to include so much in Tesserae, uh, it would be remiss of us to uh, ignore the experiences of other racial and ethnic groups. And so um, know that that's something that we're uh, that we've got coming up and uh, that we're looking forward to still engaging in. So if you are listening, I'm glad you're here because this is a conversation that uncomfortable or not, um, that we all need investment in. The days should be over of this being chalked up to a liberal conversation versus a conservative one. The day should be over where we wonder why we keep talking about it, because we don't tend to do that with sin. We recognize, again, that sin evolves um, and so that we can we continue to when it hurts, when it when it is affecting us or when we have committed sin, we engage, we identify, um, we repent and we are thankful to the Lord for being able to deliver us. So I hope that on this topic and the topics that are to come and the ways that they relate to one another, I hope that they uh, that you continue to engage with us. Well, that's all we've got for today's episode. Really glad that you could be with us today. This is a conversation we want to keep going, and these conversations are best had with friends, and so we'd love to hear from you. As we've been talking about these issues, if you've got questions or if you've got answers, uh, we would love to get in contact and touch. Uh, so we're on social media, on Facebook at Tesseray Podcast, and Twitter, Tesseray Podcast, and uh, we look forward to connecting in the future. Till next time, this has been Tesseract.